Welcome, everybody. <laughs> You're not quite sure what to do with that, are you? But I am glad you are here, and I do want to welcome you. As you can tell, we're beginning our brand new sermon series this Christmas. It's going to be an awesome series. I just feel it already in our service this morning, and I hope you'll be here. We're going to be talking about four gifts. Now, God has given us more than just four gifts at Christmas. He's given us many, many gifts. But we're going to be looking at four specific gifts, and I really hope you'll dial into these with me because I believe that they are gifts that honestly can give you confidence and courage and change your life. I really believe that with all my heart. The problem is we have a tendency to take gifts from God and put them on the shelf. Now, I don't know if this happens to you, but maybe you get some gifts at Christmas that don't really excite you, or they excite you for a little while. If you have kids, you understand this. And then they end up in a box someplace or up in a shelf somewhere, and you kind of forget about it. Well, I think we have a tendency sometimes to do that with the gifts that God gives us. And so what we're going to do for some of us, a lot of us, is take it off the shelf and unwrap it and unpack it and really, really believe into what God has given us. And as we do that, we're going to see God change our hearts and change our lives. It's going to be very exciting for us. So I hope you're here every weekend that you can. And those of you who are joining us online, I hope that you will tune in as well. So... We're going to take a look at the first gift that God has given to us. And that gift is found throughout the pages of Scripture. But we're going to look in particular at one passage found in the New Testament. So get your Bibles out, if you will, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, tucked away in the back of the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to start reading at verse 3. And here's the word of the Lord. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what is this gift? <clears throat> it's revealed to us in verse 3. He says, Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Here it is, into a living hope. Into a living hope. Which raises the question, what does it mean by a living hope? Hope. Well, a lot of the ways that we talk about hope, I wouldn't call living hope. In fact, when we use hope in our modern day language, it's more of a guess than it is a certainty. So, for instance, I might say, I hope the Vikings win tomorrow night. And that I really do hope they win tomorrow night, but I'm not certain they're going to win tomorrow night. Or maybe some of you yesterday were saying, I hope the Gophers win. Now, at 8.30, there was a mighty groaning when I said that. 
all right? And I was hoping they would win too, all right? Uh, or you might say, I hope the stock market, I hope it's strong for the next 10 years so I can retire well. Or you might say, I hope that beginning tomorrow it's 70 degrees the rest of the winter, <laughs> all right? Those are all hopes, but it's not like we have the certainty or the confidence of it. That's how we oftentimes think about hope, but that's not what Peter's talking about. The kind of hope that Peter's talking about is a confident hope. It's a certain hope. It just hasn't, hasn't come as a reality yet, but he's certain that it's going to be a reality. And it's important that he says that because the people he's writing to are believers, Jewish converts as well as Gentile converts, who are scattered throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And these folks, they are being persecuted. So much so that they're having to run and hide. They're running and hiding in caves. Some of them are running and hiding underground. These underground cities, I don't know if you've ever been to them, I have in Cappadocia. I mean, it's an amazing maze of tunnels and rooms that they built to hide out from the Romans. They were being persecuted. It was a dangerous time. And Peter says to them, don't give up. I know you got troubles. I know you're suffering. But don't forget you have a living hope. Don't let your sufferings and your troubles eat away at that living hope. I'm going to guess that some of you have some troubles in your life, some suffering that you're enduring and you're experiencing right now. How is, how is it going? How is it affecting your sense of hope. Maybe it's physical problems that you're dealing with, chronic illness, or maybe it's a terminal illness or something else. I was thinking the other day, I have not known so many people in my life as I do now and who are close to me who are struggling with pretty serious illnesses that are threatening their lives. It just seems so much. Maybe it's because I'm getting older, more aware of it. I don't know. Or maybe it's mental or emotional troubles you're struggling with. You know, it's Christmas season, and Christmas, everybody talks about being jolly and happy and singing the songs. But, you know, at Christmas time, a lot of people struggle with depression and discouragement. Or maybe it's financial woes and troubles. Everybody else may have had a good year, but it's been a real challenge for you. Or maybe what you're struggling with is in the area of relationships. Maybe it's at work or in your home or in your marriage and it just seems to be closing in on you. And it just seems like in the midst of all of that, it's hard to have hope. Now, humanly speaking, I understand that. As we humanly speak about hope, it may seem rather dismal, but we've gone beyond that. We're talking about this living hope that God has brought into our lives. You say, but pastor, that's still a challenge for me. It's just hard for me to have hope and have have these troubles, this suffering, this struggling in my life. Well, let's dig into that a little bit deeper. Let me take you back to one of the most terrible times in history. Not the most, but one of the most. It was the Holocaust. And so many Jews who were put in the death camps and millions upon millions who died. One of them was a psychiatrist. He was a famous psychoanalyst, psychotherapist. His name was Viktor Frankl. And he was placed in death camps and even Auschwitz and was one of the survivors. Afterwards, he did a lot of writing from his observations of what happened in those death camps. And he talked about four kinds of people that he found in the death camps, or four different ways that people responded to the suffering that they underwent. He said there were those 
whose response to their suffering was to become brutal. Brutal toward the other prisoners, whether it's stealing food or injuring or hurting or whatever it was, they became brutal. He said another group, they just resigned to die. They gave up hope altogether. And they wouldn't get up. It didn't matter what the Nazis did to them. They wanted to die. And that's what happened to them. He said there was a third group. And this third group made up their mind that they were going to survive in hopes of going back to life the way it was before they were placed into the death camps, before the Holocaust began. Those who did survive and went back to think that they could live the way they used to live discovered they couldn't. Many of them struggled with depression and even committed suicide. But he said there was a fourth group. And he said this fourth group, they were few in number, but he said they were very unusual. They maintained a very positive kind of spirit. Not a happy laugh and singing kind of spirit, but just, they just kind of kept very steady in their mindset. They would share their food. They would look after those who were suffering and those who were sick. They would continuously help them get focused on things that were positive, that they could find any, even a memory, rather than the things that were negative. And Frankel asked the question, why? And one of the ways he answered that is to say they simply had a hope that death and suffering could not touch. They had an ultimate hope that nothing could destroy. Tim Keller commenting on this in this passage says it this way he says whatever your ultimate hope is it will inform your now experience whatever your ultimate hope is it informs how you think right now about yourself and about life and how you behave now think about that if you want to want, if you want to know what someone's hoping in just observe. Observe their thinking and their processing and their speech and their behavior. It'll tell you a lot what they hope in, if they have hope at all. Ernest Beck wrote a book uh, quite a few years ago called Denial of Death. And he won a Pulitzer Prize for it. And then the major thesis of this book is that Beck is saying that more so than at any other time in history. We have so many people who do not believe in an ultimate future. More than any other time in history. There are so many more people who do not believe in an ultimate future. This is worldwide. You know, that's what he's saying, and it's true to this very day. There are so many people that just think, this is it. This is it. I'm here today, and then I'm going to die. I don't know why I'm going to die. I don't want to die. I'm going to try to live as long as I can, but I'm going to die, and then my body's going to be put in the ground, or it's going to be cremated, and it's done. I'm just a biological animal. And personal consciousness, that's just temporary. I don't know about you, that's just really depressing. So if that is the case, then he says what people do is they, they do put their hope, but they put their hope in finite things. Things that begin and things that end, that don't transcend this life. And in particular, three things, which is fascinating because, well, let me tell you what they are. Sex, money, power. Sex, money, power. That is what people put their hope in these days. And I, I would say that that's pretty accurate given what I see and what I hear in the media and what conversations tend to be all about. It's sex, it's money, and it's power. 
The problem is those are all finite things. And today, for many people, especially in the Western material culture, suffering is when the finite is taken away from me. When my money's gone and I had my hope in my retirement or in my, in my uh, uh, portfolio. Or when my, um, my life suddenly is struck by a disease. Or I am in difficult or bad relationships and on the list goes. It was there and now it's gone. And so a lot of people today, their, their hope is in finite things. And that's why there's so much turmoil and so much sadness and, and so much disappointment and disillusionment in our culture. Peter says to the people that he writes to, don't get your hope on the finite things. Don't let your hope be circumstantial. Because your circumstances always change. He says, instead, put your hope in that which is eternal. Put it in a living hope that you can be confident in. Do you have a living hope today? Do you have a living hope that stirs in your soul and stirs in your heart and keeps you going no matter what you might be facing in this, in this life? So tell me more about that living hope. Glad you asked. Look at verse 6. In verse 6 he writes and he says, Peter says, in all this, and the this he's talking about are those trials, right? In all this he says, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. That seems like such a paradox, doesn't it? I mean, how can you greatly rejoice while you're suffering grief in all kinds of trials? doesn't make sense in our minds. Because in our minds, at least in my mind, the idea is if I'm greatly rejoicing, I don't have to, I'm not suffering much. Maybe a little bit, but I, I hang out with something, but not a lot of suffering or trials in my life. Same thing is true. If I'm suffering a lot, I usually, you know, I'm not greatly rejoicing. I'm focused on my suffering. But in the Christian's life, we can greatly suffer and we can greatly rejoice. You say, what do you mean by that? Glad you asked again. Let's look at verse 7. <clears throat> he says, these have come, so that's the suffering, the trials, the troubles, so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. Boy, Peter and Paul could do long run-on sentences, couldn't they? All right? May result. Okay, so let's go back and what's he saying here? He's saying, when all these things happen in your life, don't think that God's not in control. If you're a follower of Christ and stuff's happening around your life, God's in control. And God's actually using those things in your life to accomplish a greater purpose in you and, listen, through you as well. He knows what he's doing. He's actually using the furnace of your trials to kind of shape you and, and mold you and allow you to be a greater witness and a, and a greater testimony for him. He's actually using the trials of your life, listen carefully, to push you into your living hope, to press you into your living hope. A few weeks ago, I was in Jordan and Israel with several Wooddalers, and I was teaching there, and we were talking about the wilderness because we were in the wilderness. It's barren. It's like lunar landscape. And I said, God oftentimes brought his people into the wilderness most of the Bible, by the way, happens in the wilderness. On the backside of Jerusalem is the wilderness. To teach them to depend on him. Because in the wilderness, 
you have no control. In the wilderness, everything's taken from you. And all you have left is you come to the end of yourself and you come to God. Our living hope. I love the story in the Old Testament, book of Daniel. They're called the three Hebrew children, but they were not children at that time. Their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they've been taken captive with many other Jews and hauled all the way over to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And these guys had kind of risen up with Daniel and were well-respected and had high positions. Nebuchadnezzar was vain, built this huge altar in the plains of Shinar and told the people that they had to come and bow to it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow. They don't bow to graven images. They only bow to God. Where he got back to Nebuchadnezzar and he became enraged about it. He said, well, then you bring them here and let me talk to them. And he threatened them. He said, if you guys don't bow to that statue, I'm going to throw you into a furnace. You're going to die. And I love their answer because their answer, and I'm paraphrasing, is you can throw us in the furnace. We may die or we may get rescued. It doesn't matter to us. We are not bowing down to that image. We only serve the living God, our living hope. And so he throws him into the furnace. Remember the story there in Daniel chapter 3? And he looks in and he sees three men walking in this huge furnace. And there's a fourth man with them. They're living hope. So I love that old Bible story, Pastor Dale. But listen, uh, it doesn't always work out that way. Some people go in the furnace and they don't come out alive. That's right. And the Bible recognizes that too. Read the book of Hebrews, the faith chapter. It talks there about many who did not have that experience. They were pressed into difficult situations, and they didn't come out alive on this side. Boy, did they come out alive and victorious on the other side. Because living hope transcends our circumstances. Living hope transcends the here and the now. Let's dial into this living hope more, because the question is, well, when do we get the living hope? Well, we taste it now, but we'll realize it. Well, watch this. Look at verse 3. Again, he says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. Right? So the question becomes, which is made possible, obviously, because Jesus died for us. He rose from the dead. If we put our faith in him and trust him, the living hope is ours. But when do we get this living hope? Look at verse 4. He says, and into an inheritance. So this living hope is an inheritance. Now, normally you get the inheritance after your parents die, right? And, or sometimes they give it to you earlier, a bit by bit uh, for tax reasons. But generally speaking, you get it at the end. So into an inheritance that can never, I love this, can never perish, spoil, or fade. Everything else in life is going to, Perish, spoil, or fade. How many of you are still eating turkey? All right. It hasn't perished, spoiled, or faded yet. It's because of all the chemicals in it. Anyway, all right. He says, this inheritance, this inheritance, look what he says. He says it's being kept in heaven for you. So this living hope, this inheritance, is being held for you. All right. Let's explore that some more. Look at verse 5. He says, who through faith, so this is, you, this is you and me, who through faith are shielded by God's power, not shielded from trouble, but shielded from God's judgment. We are, we've been removed from that because we've been saved by grace, all right? Who through faith are shielded by God's power until 
the coming of the salvation. Who's our salvation? Jesus. And what are we going to be saved from? Judgment, right? That is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, Peter didn't know when the last time was going to be. I think Peter believed, and so did Paul, that it would happen in their lifetime. But obviously it didn't, and it still hasn't. It will happen in our lifetime, or your children's lifetime. But listen carefully. All of that is being held and waiting for us at the finish line, so to speak. And we can have a certainty and a confidence in that. And I'll show you why in just a minute. But I want to show you one more thing when we talk about the finish line. Look at verse 7. It says, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in, okay? So your faith, as it's proven, as you stay steadfast and focus on the hope, the living hope of Jesus, he says, may result in, your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now think about that with me for a minute. When I first read that, as I look at that, it sounds to me what it's saying is, hey, and when you get across the finish line, you will then understand everything and you're going to give Jesus praise, Jesus glory, Jesus honor. You're going to give it to him, which is true, we will. But in that verse, in that passage, it does not talk about praise, glory, and honor that we give to Jesus. Remember, it's the result of our faith. It's, our, it's the result of our keeping focused on our living hope. This is not praise, glory, and honor to Jesus. This is praise, glory, and honor from Jesus to you and me. For fixing our eyes on him as our living hope. We can be confident in that. We can be certain of that. And he's saying to these believers, you're in trouble, but be confident and certain that someday you'll stand before God and he will give you praise. He'll share his glory with you. He'll honor you for staying faithful to him. Isn't that awesome? But, I mean, my question to you and me is, do you really believe that? Is it a, is it a, a reality for you? Is it, does it drive you? I, I was thinking about my mom who passed away a year ago when I was reading this this week, and I sometimes get sad. I think about her being gone and, but then as I read this, I thought to myself, man, what a joyful place she is in now. In the very presence of God in paradise. I just, it's so joyful for her. And all the struggles and troubles she had in her life now don't even matter to her. And when she walked in, when she came to him, he, he praised her. And he honored her and he shared his glory with her. That's the kind of God we have. It's the kind of God we have. But how do we actualize this in our life? Because I can sit here and I can say this, but how does, it, how does it become a reality for us? Tim Keller uses a, a great illustration. It's very helpful in, in understanding this. You know, all of, us, uh, all of us endure a thousand verdicts in our life. Maybe 10,000 verdicts in our life. Especially in your kids. You know, everybody, everybody says, makes judgments about you and about me. And we either hear it directly or we hear it indirectly. And normally, normally they're not real positive. A lot of times there's a lot of negative. And so you hear things like, you know, how dumb you are, how, what a loser you are, how ugly you are, how fat you are, how uh, whatever it is, right? 
You're never going to amount to much. You know, we hear those kinds of messages. And especially our kids today, they hear a lot of that. And you try to put up your, you try to put up your filters. You try to keep that stuff out. Hopefully you have people on the other side telling you the real truth, right? That God loves you, that you have potential, that, you know, uh, you're unique. And pointing out your skills, your, you know, all those things. But eventually some of that stuff gets through. And when it gets through, it pierces us deep. And once that pierces us deep, it tends to become a controlling reality for us. We start to believe it. I must be that way. That must be who I am. That must be what I'm like. They're right. I never will amount to, you know, all that verbal abuse. And then we begin to see ourselves that way, and we begin to see the world that way. We become bitter and hateful and angry toward the people who have, who have thrown those darts that have pierced our lives. Instead of letting that stuff, so you know what I'm talking about, right? You've experienced that. You know what I mean right now. So that place where that happens, what we need to do is we need to make room in that place. We need to get that stuff out of there and let the living hope, the message of God's love and God's grace pierce our inner being. We need to bring that deep inside and let that then become our controlling reality of how we think about ourselves, how we think about the future, how we think about our troubles. I like the illustration, maybe this will help more, of uh, two people that are hired for the very exact same job, but they work in two separate rooms by themselves. So every morning they go to work, and in, one, in, in each room it's, it's just blank walls, no windows, fluorescent lighting with that kind of little noise that the fluorescent lights make, that hum. They sit at the table, and their job is to take box after box after box and screw caps on bottles 80 hours a week. 80 hours a week. One of them is promised that at the end of the year, he will receive $30,000 for doing that 80 hours a week. But you better not miss a day of work. On the other hand, the other person goes into their room, same setup, same deal, screwing caps on bottles, but they're promised at the end of the year $30 million. The guy who goes in for $30,000 after a month runs out of the room screaming, stark, mad and angry. I can't do this anymore. I just can't do this anymore. My wrist hurts. My, my hand hurts. I've got carpal tunnel syndrome. It's crazy in there. I can't handle the noise. I can't see outside. It's not worth $30,000. I quit. The other person, they go to work every single day with a smile on their face. Their hand hurts, their wrist hurts, but they massage it. They do their best to kind of make it work out. And then when they leave, they have a smile on their face. And while they're in there, they're humming and they're singing. They even ask if there's more that can be done. Why? Who's really the insane one? $30 million is why. There's a big payoff in the end. Peter's saying, yeah, there's suffering and troubles in this life, but there's a huge payoff in the end. Huge payoff in the end. Our living hope. You know, God never asks us to do something he's not willing to do as well, to model it for us. Let me show you what I mean. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The writer says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, right? So what am I focused on today? What are you, who and what are you focused on today? 
He says, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. That is, he's gone ahead for us and he's perfected our faith for us. He says, for the joy set before him, says, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. All right, let's talk about that for a moment. Jesus experienced the paradox we talked about earlier. On the one hand, while he was here on this earth, he had great joy. Who or what was his joy? The people were his joy. You and I, we are his joy. But at the same time, he endured the cross. And there was nothing easy about the cross. He suffered greatly. Remember the garden? He sweat, dro- uh, he sweat drops like blood. They were blood. He was in so much trauma. Father, it's possible remove this from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And then that horrible crucifixion. So he is suffering greatly, but he has this greater joy, the joy that he knows he'll bring to the world by salvation, but he also has a living hope. You say, what's his living hope? His living hope is the Father. His living hope is the the resurrection. He knows his Father well enough that even though he's going to die, he's going to be raised to life again. So his living hope gives him the capacity to endure all of this suffering that he's going through the fact that he's going to win us to himself. See, that's our confidence. That's, that's what it means to have a living hope. Do you have that living hope? Do you know that living hope in your life? It's been made available to you, and it's been made available to me, and God asks us to, to focus on that rather than these struggles and troubles we face on this earth. What I wish I could do today So I wish I could come over and give every one of you a a gift. I can't physically do it, but I can spiritually do that. I I can open this up and I can say, you know what? God has hope for you. I wish I could place this in you. But I don't have to do that. God already has. Don't take it out, wrap it up, put it back again. I want to challenge you to live by this hope. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for providing me, providing us a living hope. His name is Jesus, who gave his life so that we could have eternal life. Thank you for how he reconciles us to you. Thank you, Father, that someday it's so hard to believe for us, but someday... You will share your glory with us. You will honor us. You will praise us for being faithful to you. And yet we realize if it wasn't for you, we couldn't be faithful to you. You adore us. You love us. That you are willing to suffer for us. God, we give you praise and thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.